Hello and welcome to Discovering Jazz. My name's Larry Sademan, and in this program, we all discover jazz, old and new, together by listening to a wide array of selections, exploring different jazz styles and topics related to jazz, we'll learn more about what it is, what it isn't, how it's developed, and what we can listen for to enhance our experience. For the next 60 minutes, Discovering Jazz. Last year, I put together a couple programs on the cross-fertilization between classical or serious music and the various forms of jazz. My guest for those programs was a Peterborough saxophonist and raconteur, Al Bags. I recorded a lot of our stimulating conversation. I, I want to add more of it to this program, focusing on jazz music that has been influenced by classical, and maybe if time, touch on some classical music that's been influenced by jazz. So let's get started. A lot of music that tries to jazzify classical compositions and up to my mind is enhancing neither. Let me get a bit of that type of thing out of my system. Then I promise you that I'll play nothing like that again in this program. Rather than the classical jazz interaction here being greater than the sum of its parts, to my mind it ends up subtracting a bit from each. Here is Claude Bowling with the Allegro from Mozart's Eine Kleine Nachtmusik from Bowling's Jazz Gang Amadeus Mozart album of 1965. Thank you. 
Okay, I guess it's nice. Mozart then to Dixieland. But it's novelty, not musical art. I always loved Mozart's Anna Kleinenach music. It was like the music of my dreams. So it's hard to do much to improve on it, so to speak. I'm not sure what the purpose of doing this is. Now let's move on to something where I do see a purpose. And it's also an interpretation of a classical piece, this time from a big band orchestra from 1937. Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra with their rendition of Rimsky-Korsakov's Song of India. Now, maybe I like this jazz rendition of a serious piece of music so much better than the first one because the Tommy Dorsey version was the first version I heard of that particular tune. In fact, I couldn't recall what the original composition even sounded like. 
Let's give some of it a try and see. You know, listening to Rosa Poncel and her beautiful rendition of Rimsky-Korsakov's Song of India, then hearing the Tommy Dorsey version, I get the sense of a true creative transformation. From my chat with him last year in his home in Peterborough, Ontario, here is Al Banks. The Dorsey brothers were, were fine musicians. One yeah. was a saxophone player, the other trombones. Um, the Song of India is one of the first jazz compositions I ever heard on one of my parents' old 78s. Oh, really? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. So I know it well. <laughs> well, you've got two examples there, the Anvil Chorus and, and, and the Song of India, of how the big bands were influenced um, by by the classical world. They were not. They, these old big band musicians were top flight players, as you know. All of these guys were, were deeply influenced by, by classical music. Miller had Jerry Gray, his top arranger, do um, um, the Anvil Chorus by um, on his um, um, Verdi's opera Il Trovatore. So, yeah, it's nice to see the two streams coming together. It's nice to see the um, and, and the influences and and there are pure jazz purists and classical purists who who say the world the two worlds must not meet we we mustn't contaminate uh, in fact classical music with jazz and and jazz musicians purists who say we mustn't in fact jazz music with classical I think this is a nonsense I think the the, the two and the the, the the academies, the musicians, the kids at school, they go, to, they go through both streams, but they interact with each other and attend each other's performances. And the, the world is the now and the future. We listen to the past, 
And if we don't, we make terrible mistakes. From 1941, this recording reached number three on the U.S. Billboard charts, Glenn Miller Orchestra and their version of the Anvil Chorus, adapted from an opera by Giuseppe Verdi. Many talk about the Glenn Miller Orchestra as being lightweights in the world of jazz and swing, but as you can hear, they had mighty good musicians and some very creative arrangements. You're listening to their version of Verdi's Anvil Chorus. Today on Discovering Jazz, I'm talking about the relationship between jazz and classical, or what is also termed serious music. If you want to hear more on this topic and more from Al Bags, listen to episodes 28 and 37. Staying for a couple more selections on the theme of classical-influenced jazz, we'll go forward a few years where jazz artists began to do a lot more than just adapt the melody, simplify the chords, and add some swing to the classics. Let's hear more from Al Bags. A constant, uh, predictable tempo is an incentive to creativity, whether it's in hot or cool jazz music. And classical players, you know, earn their living rather differently. Um... In any school, they're confronted with all sorts of tempi changes and, and uh, uh, time signatures. Um, uh, the, the jazz altruist, alter, uh, Paul Desmond, who was uh, mathematically cerebral, um, he could perform jazz uh, in just about any time signature, as we know, 11-4, for example. Um, 
But even his improvisational genius uh, needed uh, reliable um, uh, rhythmic constancy. He played with Brubeck for, was it 17 years? Something like that, you know. Probably one of the greatest uh, jazz chamber quartets. One of the most pronounced differences between jazz and classical might be that rhythmic constancy, which is an essential part of most jazz, as compared to the more rhythmic complexity of classical or serious music. So it might be said that the Dave Brubeck Quartet might have been one of the most revolutionary jazz groups ever in bringing these two streams together. Here is an illustration. Blue Rondo Alaturk.
from 1959, the Dave Brubeck Quartet, from his classic Time Out album, with Paul Desmond on alto sax, Joe Morello drums, and bassist Eugene Wright. Staying for another few selections where classical or serious music has influenced jazz, Al Baggs talks about Miles Davis and sketches of Spain. He studied at Juilliard, and his appreciation for orchestral work is, is very evident in his sketches of Spain. I can't be sure, but I'm prepared to bet that Davis listened to him was captivated by uh, Rodriguez, Concerto de Aranworth, uh, and many other Spanish uh, treats, um, such as Malaguena by Albanese, um, Nights in the Garden of Spain by Manuel de Fala, and... Uh, and and uh, Spanish-flavored works by um, the French composer Bizet, you know, such as Carmen. You know, I'm sure I'm sure Miles must have listened to these guys at uh, Juilliard and elsewhere. And um, you know, and and like the hybrid um, Argentinian tango music of Nestor Marconi or or Astor Piazzolla, um, Spanish music is is highly infectious, and and Miles Davis certainly caught the virus. Sketches of Spain featured arrangements by Gil Evans, who is considered to be one of the founders, along with Gunther Schuller, of what is called third stream music, which combines classical and jazz. And the longest piece is the adagio from Rodriguez, Concerto de Arnuez. Side one also includes an arrangement of composer Manuel de Falla's Willow the Wisp. The record was disparaged from by uh, some jazz purists for having very little in it that resembled jazz rhythms. The piece I want to play is one of the Gil Evans originals. It's true, not much in the way of jazz rhythm, but lots of Spanish rhythms, however, and some nice improvisational moments from Miles. This is Saeta spelled S-A-E-T-A.
want to stay with sketches of Spain for another few minutes because there are some moments in some of it that give a nice illustration of some of the subtleties that distinguish classical or serious music from jazz, even serious orchestral composed jazz, such as that particular record. One of the pieces is by Spanish composer Manuel de Falla, and it's from his ballet suite El Amor Brugo, first performed in 1915. I'm going to first play that piece, Will o' the Wisp, as beautifully sung by opera singer Leontine Price with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Fritz Reiner. Then I'll play the Miles Davis Gil Evans Sketches of Spain version, where you'll notice that touch of swing that does transform this piece into something quite different. Thank you. 
wow, not just rhythmically different, but harmonically different as well, and uh, melodically some interesting variations too. Miles Davis, Will of the Wisp from Sketches of Spain. We've made some references early on to third stream jazz, or more accurately, third stream music. The person who coined the phrase in 1957, American composer and orchestrator Gunther Schuller, described it as something somewhere in between jazz and classical, and said that really there's no such thing as third stream jazz. The term has been used to describe any kind of jazz that has any classical references, but Schuller insists that it is not jazz played on classical instruments, not jazz with strings, and not a bunch of jazz bebop changes with some quotes from classical compositions. Improvisation is an important part of it, as is some of the blues scales often found in jazz. Here's something by Gunther, Gunther Schuller from an album that involves John Lewis from the Modern Jazz Quartet and guitarist Jim Hall. The album from 1960 is called Jazz Abstractions. This piece is mostly credited to Hall, and I, I think it's spectacular and a beautiful illustration of third stream music. It's called Peace for Guitar and Strings. <laughs> Thank you. 
piece for guitar and strings, a collaboration between uh, guitarist Jim Hall, John Lewis, and uh, arranger and inventor of third stream music, Gunther Schuller. Staying with third stream, there have been a few Canadian composers who have been involved in that amalgamation of jazz and classical. One from Winnipeg is Victor Davies, who has had a long and extensive career with CBC. He wrote a number of what would be termed third stream compositions and even had a group that he called the third stream jazz ensemble. One of his most famous recent works is jazz-flavored chamber suite written to accompany a montage of Canadian artworks called Colors of Jazz. Here's a short piece from that suite called In the Alley, Victor Davies. continue playing something Canadian that fits that third stream genre. My guest in this Discovering Jazz program, jazz and classical saxophonist and music aficionado Al Baggs from Peterborough, has spoken about how there is one jazz composer who he believes will go down in history as being classical. Let's hear him talk about that. I, I think Ellington is, uh, is an ex- exponent of both cool and third stream um, music. It's classical jazz. This is brilliant music. And I remember years ago, when I was very young, I attended um, uh, a performance of the Ellington Orchestra at King's College Chapel in Cambridge, England. And um, we were all bowled over by this wonderful orchestra. I mean, it, it was a... It, it was a it was a joy just to, to see these great artists. I mean, Johnny Hodges, um, Harry Carney, a console baritone saxophone, um, Ellington on piano, and with Billy Strayhorn, you know, his sidekick for many years. They wrote some breathtaking, really wonderful music. And so, yeah, this is classical music in, in a jazz form, and I suspect it will be classical hundred years from today when people music scholars look at look at the music of the 20th century they'll say Ellington was classical. I had the pleasure of going to the Victoria Jazz Festival this summer and a surprising highlight for me was the Naden Band from the Royal Canadian Navy 
whose membership incorporated a number of Victoria's best jazz players, some as guests and some as regular band members. Here is a smaller ensemble from that band playing a Duke Ellington piece. And to me, the highlight is the saxophone solo by a Victoria jazz artist, Roy Steiff. Give a listen to their version of Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Lady.
beautiful saxophone by Victoria's Roy Steiff. Two of the most significant elements of jazz have been described as being that type of rhythmic constancy Al Bagg spoke about earlier, in particular a swing rhythm, plus its use of what has been termed the blues scale. I'm going to end today's program of Discovering Jazz with a focus on that second component, playing part of a classical composition written by a Czech composer in the 1890s that has been described as introducing America to itself. And as I play it, Al Baggs will give us a summary of what he sees as being both the differences, the connection, and what we call the cross-fertilization of serious music and jazz. It seems to me that the, the universe of serious music is characterized by many, many more elements of unpredictability, of surprise, than jazz. Uh, and I'm sure this accounts for the, the deep respect of jazz players, performers, you know, for the classics and, and why they listen hard uh, for inspiration, but um, I'm not suggesting here that jazz compositions as such uh, are lacking in musical qualities uh, that can endure popularity's tests of time, you know, um, that jazz musicians are, are limited in their conceptual boundaries, uh, that great jazz performances don't move audiences. I'm not suggesting that. Uh, far from it. You know, Ellington's jazz compositions we talked about, they're just remarkable. Um, but we all sense the differences between classical and jazz, even if we, we can't articulate them. In his Music Instinct book, Philip Ball uh, talks about the fundamental pitch soundscape. This is an interesting concept. Uh, for most jazz and, and, and a lot of uh, popular music, um, that pitch soundscape is the blues scale. You know, in C, it's uh, C, E flat, uh, F, G flat, G, B flat, uh, whatever the key you, you transpose it. Um, although, generally, individual classical works, may, they may not have fundamental pitch soundscapes, if we actually listen to them very carefully. Um, I'm going to use an example here. Uh, is, is Vorjak's... Uh, the first movement of of, um, of Vorjak's New World Symphony in E minor uses the keys um, E minor, B, uh, C, A flat, and E minor as pitch soundscapes. So it's not just one; it's it's a variety of pitch soundscapes. And it would be foolish to, to suggest that that somewhere within these four pitch soundscapes. Uh, Variants that are chosen by by Borjak, there there lurks something akin to a common denominator that is found in jazz. I mean, a pitch soundscape constant. There's no constant like we we see in jazz. Um, of course, like Borjak, uh, jazz musicians do use various pitch soundscapes, and keys, chords. By definition, you know. For doing songs and other compositions, but they don't—they—they they soon start to lose their credibility. I think that's the point I'm trying to make here, as jazz musicians, if they stray too far from fundamental blues pitch roots or soundscapes. Uh, in other words, at least until recent times, the blues has been considered um, as deserving at least a passing mention in every jazz solo. We hear this at the pub, we hear this any, anywhere. You'll hear the blues being jazz playing, you'll hear blue notes somewhere. Why did they call a record label Blue Note? You know. <laughs> 
So, as as jazz music evolves, uh, becomes more sophisticated, uh, more orchestral, uh, or complicated, <laughs> whatever you think, um, this dependency on the blues soundscape may, may change. Uh, Vorjak, or for that matter, any other great musical creator, uh, would never have reached his pinnacle as a classical composer had all his works been governed and conceptually restricted uh, by just one distinctive fundamental pitch. Uh, for example, by something akin to the blues virus. I call it a virus. It did, it, that's derogatory, but it, you know what I mean. Um, I'm jesting, of course, but, but only to, to illustrate the concept and, and the relevance of pitch soundscape differences in drawing uh, comparisons between classical and, and jazz music and um, but you know having made this point in music as in life um, uh, there may be chaos especially on stage but uh, 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 and we're likely to run into difficulties if we get bogged down with the not notion, notion of absolutes um, absolute rules for the artistic uh, for the artistic mind, the artistic creation road, you know. So, turning again, if we go back to Borjak, uh, to his New World creation, um, the second movement, the Largo, um, uh, which is sometimes known as uh, Going Home. Da 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 right, dee, yeah. da da. Um, uh, to my personal ear, Borjak steers a little off the, the road that I've been talking about. Um, in fact, he gives listeners a fleeting hint at the blues. Um, at the 11th bar of the second movement, uh, there's an English horn passage, which is uh, uh, with some soft clarinet assistance. Um, and this rises momentarily into a quasi-blues uh, F minor scale. Um, the symphony, although it has Slavonic textures, uh, Slavon Slavonic pitch soundscapes, um, uh, if you will, uh, in its uh, musical DNA, it, it, it's of course dedicated to the new world. And, and Vorjak achieved a hint of subtle homespun North American bluesiness, um, folksy sort of coloration to 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 this going home theme, which is just a delight. But I hear the blues when I hear that. Some people may not, but the the musical component is there on that F minor switch. You know, mom, the the moment in the F minor. You know. You've been listening to Discovering Jazz, coming to you through Peterborough Independent Podcasters and Apple Podcasts. My name is Larry Sademan. Thanks to Al Bags for his insights on the classical and jazz connection. Bye for now. <laughs>